right, good morning, everybody. We're going to continue our study here going through the life of Christ. Uh, last week, we were able to combine a couple of days together. If you recall, we began here in John uh, chapter number one. And, uh, and in that chapter, you find that a couple of substantial things happen, um, especially when we looked at last week, specifically days three and four that we have recorded of Christ's public ministry. Um, and this was the calling of uh, the disciples. And you see he calls John and Andrew and then Peter and then, uh, and then uh, Bartholomew, and he continues to call these disciples. And what was the testimony that we saw last week when we looked at that? Once again, you know, we have, uh, we have been raised with all these different letters and books of the Bible all combined into one nice, neat little package for us. And we're certainly blessed that that is the case. There are people that do not have the Word of God uh, currently. Um, but if you think about the purpose of John... And why he was writing it, he was writing this as a letter of testimony to say that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one that has come to redeem Israel and all the world. And so as John's writing this, he begins to kind of lay out the case for Christ being the Messiah. And so whenever we read in chapter number one, you see the testimony of John the Baptist, which is a powerful testimony, especially for Jews in that, in that, in that day. But then you go on to see the testimony of the apostles or the disciples as they're being called, that they testify that he is the king of Israel or he's the Messiah or he's the son of God or he's the son of man. And this is the, uh, the, the testimony or the message that John begins his story of, this, of, of Jesus Christ's life. He begins it talking about what other people said about Jesus, um, that, that John the apostle isn't some kind of lone nut on an island by himself, no, there's a, there's a multitude of witnesses that would testify the exact same thing, that Jesus was the Christ. In chapter number two that we'll be looking at here today, we see the second beyond the, uh, the testimony of those people that knew Jesus and lived with Jesus and were around Jesus. Uh, we see beginning in chapter number two, John begins to detail or record for us these miracles that Jesus uh, conducted or performed in his life. Now, what you'll find whenever you read the Bible is it talks about that Jesus did many miracles and signs, right? This was the purpose of these miracles was to be a sign, to testify that, you're, that this is who you should be following. Uh, whenever you um, go out of town on a trip, you know, you see the green, you know, signs on the highway that say, you know, wherever your destination is, you know, St. Louis or Kansas City or Chicago or Memphis or Dallas, there'll be a sign along the road that's telling you you're headed in the right direction. Uh, I went to, uh, maybe some of you have gone out to like the Badlands in North and South Dakota, and if you ever head anywhere in that general part of the country, uh, you know, I think it's even, there's a couple of hundred miles out, there are these billboards for a place called Waldrug. Has anybody ever seen these signs or been to this place? Yeah. But it's like literally like 200 miles before you get to this place called Waldrug, which it's a, just a tourist trap. It is nice. It's, I, I would encourage people to go. It's a good time. But it's a touristy place. But for 200 miles, they are telling people, hey, don't miss Waldrug. You know, you're, you're heading in the right direction. You're on the correct road. You're on the correct path. And so whenever it talks about miracles in the Bible, what are these are signs. They're telling people that you are on the right path. Now, once again, uh, you know, uh, the sign is not the real thing, is it? No. The sign for wall drug that says 150 miles, you know, souvenirs and tourist stuff or whatever. The sign's great, but it's not the real thing. It's just a sign. It's just a direction. It's just pointing you in the path you should be going. And so these, 
miracles, these signs, aren't the real thing. They're pointing us to the real thing, which is Jesus Christ. And so in chapter number two, John begins to go beyond just the testimony of the disciples, but now he begins to use the testimony of these signs and miracles that Jesus performs. So we're going to read verses 1 through 11, the story of uh, the first miracle in Canaan here. I'm sorry, John chapter number 2. That's a good, uh, a good, good question there. John chapter number 2. John chapter number 2. And we'll read the first 11 verses here. And the third day, there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he uh, saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus saith, and Jesus saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he knew not whence it was. But the servants which drew the water knew. And the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So we even see here the testimony at the end of the story is at the end of this miracle that these disciples that had been following John the Baptist in chapter number one that we spent the last couple of weeks looking at, these disciples that have been following Jesus, and uh, or they've been following John the Baptist, have been directed to follow Jesus, and now you find that they're putting their personal faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the signs, because of the miracles, because of the testimony that was given there. So this is a very um, common story. Uh, you know, we could sit here for the rest of eternity and talk about all that could be uh, explored here in this passage of Scripture. Uh, but I'd like to divide it up into four, four different events that took place. And we'll kind of go through it like that. In chapter number two, verse number one, you find out it begins with a party. All right. Uh, and the third day, there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. So there was this event uh, that, um, for us in America, we, uh, you, uh, we, we, we don't quite understand what this experience was like in, in back in these days, what, what a marriage feast was. It, this was probably the most significant event that's going to take place. Um, it, there's probably not any more of a, a, a more important ceremony that people are going to go to than to go to this event. Uh, go to a marriage back in these days. Uh, a, a marriage was a a, a, um, a critical a critical success for a community. Back in these days, whenever a young man and young woman got married, this was uh, this was sh this should be celebrated. This should be um, highlighted because this is uh, this is um, uh, the next generation that's coming on be, be behind us, that we won't be here for long, and we're going to pass on, and we need another, another generation to come be behind us. And seeing a young man and young woman, or old man, old woman, get married, what it does, that strengthens a community. Your, your community is only as strong as your families. And if your families are weak and broken, then your culture and your society is going to be weak and broken. And so a marriage party for them was the most important event that they could possibly go to. 
This was a meaningful, important thing. And back in those days, you know, uh, we, you know whenever we have uh, marriage ceremonies, uh, whenever we got married, my wife and I got married in this church, and we invited people to come, and we hung out for a couple hours, but then it was time to go. We had places to go and things to do, right? And it was time to part ways. And so people would come together for a couple of hours, and you, you, know, you, you witness uh, the vows, you witness the commitment, uh, you might have a party, and then you head your separate ways. Well, back in these times, because this was such a significant and meaningful event, the parties lasted for days, uh, up to seven days. You could have a marriage that would last up to seven days. And, you know, once again, our, our modern minds can't grasp, you know, kind of how this would work. But part of the, well, this is the way that kind of marriages were conducted in the, in the Middle East during Bible times. Ballpark, this is kind of the, basically the, the timeline. You'd have a man and a woman that would be a spouse together, usually by their parents, the parents would kind of put them together, and they would become a spouse. They would become, basically, in the, in, the law, in the eyes of the law, they were as good as married, although they had not, you know, physically consummated the marriage. But they were, in the eyes of the law, they were as married as you could be. And what would happen is the, the bridegroom would usually take about a year, and he would go while they were a spouse, and he would go and prepare and make sure that he was ready to receive his bride. And so he, for, for a year, he was very busy and diligent, and she was as well. She was getting prepared for this event. And then once they had prepared and they were ready, uh, and they felt like they were on stable ground, they would have this party, and they would invite everybody to it, and people would stay for days. And if you were invited to these parties, this was a big deal. This was, you know, uh, you were going to be traveling uh, probably a significant uh, distance, probably putting your life in harm's way to attend this event. And so it was customary and it was expected that whenever you invited someone to these kind of events, that you would take care of all their needs for the duration of their stay. So maybe something could be more applicable for us and what we experience in America. It's like going on a really nice vacation. This is what a marriage event would have been like to them. It would have been, uh, you know, we're going to go for gone. We're going to be gone for a week. Or we're going to go have a good time. We're going to visit our friends and our family and celebrate in their marriage and we're just going to be there and share our time with them and this was a big deal in those days and that's what a marriage kind of took uh, kind of uh, consisted of back in those days and so you'd have the the groom and the bride preparing and and you know there uh, there was there's discussion and we'll talk about it you know in regards to you know how, you know the uh the um the situation of running out of wine and why was it such a why was it such a big deal back in those days but once again you, you know you, you you've been a spouse for a year put yourself in the shoes of the bridegroom or the bride and you've been a spouse for a year and you're trying to prove to her father that you can take care of her all the same things we worry about when we think about somebody marrying our daughter one day is he going to take care of her is he going to provide for her is he going to protect her and so you spend all year trying to get all your ducks in a row and the very first event you invite everybody to you fail that's what's at stake here you're going to be shamed people are going to think oh they're not going to make it the, the father of the bride is going to be thinking, why well, she's married a moron, right? Well, you all think that, but that's what they're going to think, right? There, there was a lot at stake here uh, if you were to not host the party the correct way. Up to and including, there's, they've found documents where people could sue another person if they didn't prepare their wedding the correct way. Because, because once again, like, hey, I'm traveling 40 miles across the desert to come visit you and put my family at risk, and we're going to depend upon you when we get there. And, and the expectation is you're going to take care of me because I'm going to take care of you. Because the roles will be reversed one day. And I'm going to be inviting you to my party and my daughter and my, my, my son or whatever. And I'm going to make sure I take care of you 
so you take care of me. And if you don't do that, people would actually get sued. Hey, you, you invited me to your party and you didn't provide for us and now we're out all this money. There wasn't, a, listen, there wasn't a grocery store they could run to if they ran out of supplies. No, no, there was no convenience store. There was, you, didn't, you couldn't order it on Amazon. You were, you were taking your whole family and traveling at great distances, trusting and hoping that whenever we get there, all of our needs will be met. This is, this is kind, of the, the, the kind of the event that they're talking about whenever they talk about a wedding back in Bible times. And we find the location here is in Cana, the Bible says. This was probably about 10 miles from Nazareth. So this was uh, uh, more than likely these were, you know, we don't know exactly why Mary was there. It says here in verse number one of the third day there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. So... Once again, we're, we're speculating here a little bit, but probably a family member, perhaps even Mary had been recruited to help serve in the wedding at this time. We don't know this. All we know is she saw a need and she brought it to Jesus, but, uh, but Mary was involved in some capacity here. In some way, if nothing else, she was involved in the fact that she didn't want to see shame come to maybe a family or a friend that was hosting a large party like this. And Jesus comes to the party he's invited it says verse number two and both jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage and so we find here that jesus uh comes to this wedding and jesus celebrates this wedding and i think that this is a uh, a good um a good principle for all people at all times and all ages that marriages should be celebrated that marriages are a gift from god Marriages are a gift. There's this, uh, there's this you know, the theological terminology, something called common grace, grace that God gives to all men. So, for example, if you're breathing air right now, whether you're saved or lost, whether you're a child of God or a child of Satan, you have received common grace from God. You can breathe air. He created that for you. He created for you water, and he created for you food, and he created for you beautiful scenes and landscapes and mountains and, and all kinds of wonderful things for our enjoyment. He made all these things common grace. But one of the most important things he gave to all people, lost or saved, is the gift of marriage. Marriage is a gift. Marriage is a gift of God's common grace to mankind. And marriage should be lifted up in our society. It should not be, it should not be uh, looked at in low esteem or low regard. And marriage, once again, if you don't have very strong marriages, you will not have a very strong country. You will not have a very strong culture. And you can look at, uh, you know, uh, hi history after history of recorded people all throughout time. And what you will find is people that had a low view of marriage, they didn't last very long. And I'm concerned as an American citizen that we're living in a time where, mar where marriage is past the point of being under attack. I mean, that, that happened back in the 90s. That happened back in the 80s where marriage was being attacked. Now marriage has been pulled down into a gutter and... We call two men getting together a marriage. That's not a marriage. But that's what we call it. Two, two women getting together, we call this, a, that's not a marriage. You can call it whatever you want, but that's not a marriage according to God and his word. But, but all of, I mean, the truth is, if you're an American citizen, all of our laws are being shifted in that direction. And this is, uh, this is a, 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 should be a, a warning flag to us that, that, that they're not, there's not a lot of time left and we should be busy and we should be ready because uh, what, what, what at one time was considered, you know, a Christian nation has so turned its back against, not even, not even like 
you know, have no false gods before you, although that certainly should apply to us. But even beyond that, it's not just that we've rejected that we shouldn't have false idols. We're rejecting what even nature tells us is right. The reason why marriage is important is because a, a biblical marriage, a man and a woman getting married, is because you can't have another generation if two men are getting married. You can't have another generation if two women are getting married. You will not continue to exist. You will go into extinction because two men or two women cannot produce a child. You have to have a man and a woman to produce a child. And that should be protected because that's what our society is built upon. Even if you care nothing about the Bible or Jesus or God or heaven or hell or any of that, if you care about your country, you should want marriage to be lifted up, exalted. It should be strong. It should be something we point to and aspire to have for all people. Marriage is important. It was so important that Jesus attended a marriage. I, I, think, I think it's proper, it's right, that there's a biblical precedence for us to want Jesus to be involved in our marriages. And I'm talking about certainly after you're married, but I'm talking about the, the ceremony itself. Jesus should, be fell, should feel welcome there. It should be a place where Jesus receives glory for this gift that he's given men and women. And marriages are important, and they should be protected, and they should be guarded. And we shouldn't just be calling everything that people want to call a marriage a marriage. We, you know, Christians were ridiculed back in the 90s whenever, whenever people were attacking the family and they were like, oh, you're just worried about, you know, what, you know, you guys always just jump to like, anytime you talk about changing the nature of marriage, you guys always just jump directly to, you know, pedophilia or bestiality or some of these other sins. And we'd never come close to that. And look at us today. We are on the threshold of, of pedophilia becoming legal. On the threshold of it. They're already, they're already talking, politicians are already talking about it. And if politicians are talking about it, they're going to do it one day. You can mark that down. Oh, you're worried about the slippery slope. Well, let me, the slippery slope was real. And now, and now we, have, uh, we have a society where you can't even, you, you will be ridiculed, you'll be ostracized, you'll be outcast if you stand up and say a man should be a man and a woman should be a woman and they shouldn't, uh, they shouldn't be having two men getting together or two women getting together. You'd probably lose your job if you stood up and said that at work. But that's where we've come today. But marriage is a blessing from God for common grace. And Jesus was invited to this wedding. And Jesus attended this wedding. Listen, uh, we, we only have, we've talked about this, we only have 55 rough, r- roughly days recorded of his public ministry. And one of those days he said, I want to go to a, a wedding. That's how important it was. That he wanted to be there at this time for this event. See, first of all, you see the party. And then secondly, you see the problem. In verses 2 through 5, it says, And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto them, They have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And his mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. So it starts out with a party. And uh, we've talked a little bit about, about that, what the, what the kind of that experience was like. This was not just what we would consider kind of like a marriage. This was a three or four, sometimes a seven-day event, a highlight of the community, of certainly of the people involved, the social obligations that were required at that time. But then you find that at this wedding feast, there was a problem, that 
They had run out of refreshments. They had run out of wine. They had, they had run out of the, the supplies that were needed to conduct this event. And so you see this social embarrassment that this bridegroom and this bride are now facing because they've been planning for possibly up to a year and they've invited friends and family and they want to have a, a good celebration and people have come from all around and now they have to admit we weren't prepared. We weren't expecting this many people or maybe we just didn't have enough money to prepare for all the people that were coming. We just hope it'd work out. But then Jesus shows up with these extra disciples we weren't planning for. I don't know if that was the cause of it, but uh, maybe they weren't anticipating that. But there was this problem. There was no going to the grocery store for supplies. The hosts were responsible for providing everything that they needed. And you find in this moment that Mary, we don't know why. There's no, there's no recorded reason in Scripture why. But Mary decides this is a problem that Jesus should, should be aware of. I, I, we don't. I, we don't. Once again, we don't know. We're we're, we're speculating here. But uh, one thing that's that's one thing we don't see recorded here in Scripture is we don't see Joseph anywhere. Joseph is not in the picture. Mary's husband. Uh, we haven't heard about him since Jesus was around the 12, age of twelve. We don't know what happened. It's commonly believed that uh, perhaps that Joseph had died, and that and that's probably pretty safe to assume. And if that is true. Jesus was the breadwinner in his family. So for 30 years, as the firstborn and oldest son in that family, there was no, there was no social welfare net that was there to catch people that had hard times. There was no politicians that you could call. There you couldn't go down to the state office and get on unemployment. If your husband died, you, had, you need to get, get remarried right away or you're going to be in trouble. Uh, probably, once again, we're speculating here a little bit, perhaps Jesus was put in this position of having to provide for the family up until this age of 30 here. So Jesus is the, the breadwinner probably, and probably when Mary had problems, she took him to Jesus. And that's probably a good plan. Because every time, just imagine, every time for 30 years when Mary came to Jesus, he gave her the perfect answer. He gave her the perfect solution. He knew exactly what needed to happen, and he did it perfectly every time. And so perhaps maybe this is just out of, out of just her response of knowing that Jesus always was able to solve any issue. She comes to Jesus and says, hey, our friends, our family, perhaps friends and family, they ran out of supplies for the party. It's going to be really embarrassing. I find it very interesting, Jesus' response back to Mary. He didn't say, oh, mom, I'll get right on that. That's not what he said. His response here, it says in verse number four, Jesus saith unto her, woman. Now, in studying through this, um, I came across a couple of people that said that this term woman is maybe not the way that we would use that term woman. If you, if you, if you, if you came across a lady in 2024 and you called her just, hey, woman, Probably not going to be a great response to that. Probably not going to appreciate that. Uh, but in studying this, they would say this was maybe the term they would use. Instead of saying yes, ma'am or no, ma'am, they would say woman. It was a term of respect. But it wasn't mom. He wasn't saying mother, was he? There was some intimacy there that he was not opening up. He called her woman. Not, not a disrespectful thing, but certainly not an intimate name for her either. 
He says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And then continuing on, his mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now, what is going on in this response to, from Jesus to Mary? Um, and then seemingly, it's almost like if you, if you just retake it just, as, just for its face value, it almost seems like Mary just almost like ignored what Jesus said and just kept pushing ahead. That's kind of the, the view that you get. But that's really not what's happening here. Whenever Jesus comes to this event, some significant things have happened in the previous few days. You guys have been here in class, you're aware of that. There was a baptism. There was a calling of disciples. There was uh, being tempted by Satan out in the wilderness. And things have changed. Prior to this, Jesus was a 30-year-old carpenter in Nazareth taking care of his widow, his mom who was a widow, and his brothers and sisters. That was his role probably in his life up to this point. But something changed when he went into public ministry, whenever that moment of the baptism happened. And whenever that moment came, Jesus was no longer, his priority was no longer Mary and his brothers and sisters. And this was, this was not anything new. Uh, many years earlier, whenever they went to Jerusalem, there's a story where Jesus gets, mis- he gets left behind. And whenever they find Jesus, they find him in the temple and he's in there teaching. And what does the Bible say Jesus' response to his mother and father is? He said, don't you know, I must be about my father's business. And so from this moment of baptism, uh, even up until this very day, that's what Jesus is doing. He is doing his father's business. He's no longer doing Mary's business. He, 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 he came to this point where he said, this, this phrase here, what have I to do with thee? It's, uh, it was a common phrase used back in those days. Not a legal term, but just in the vernacular of the day. Basically, it's saying, like, we don't have anything in common on this issue. That's what Jesus was saying back to Mary. He's saying, prior to, to entering into public ministry, you were my priority and taking care of you and providing for you and making sure that you were looked after. But you have older, you have older children now that can help you out. Now I need to be focused on my father's business. And the, the point was this. I can't just do it because you want me to, Mary. I need to check with my father first. This was the response that Jesus was giving back to Mary. He's saying, what ha- woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, this is the first time we hear Jesus. Refer- we will find it many times moving forward where it talks about his hour. In the Bible, whenever it talks about his hour, it's talking about his moment of sacrifice when he dies upon the cross. And what he's telling Mary is, I'm, I'm now concerned more with my father's business than, than, what, than your friends at a wedding. I, 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 can't, I can't do it just because you want me to, Mary. As a matter of fact, he even says, woman, what have I do? we don't have anything in common on this topic anymore. Uh, but what you do find is Jesus, um, he does respond to his mother. Now, uh, once again, I, I, the, the thought here is that Jesus is saying, not that there's a conflict of interest, not that he's saying that Mary and God have a conflict of interest, but what Jesus was saying is, don't just assume now that I'm going to do everything that you want because I'm your son. I have someone else I'm answering to. I have someone else that I have to, I have to uh, take care of, and that's my heavenly father. And so if it's in his will, then yes, Mary, I can help you. But if it's not, I won't. And, and this, is, this is not the first time Jesus kind of takes this stance. If you read, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, uh, you'll find that there's one time where Mary and, his, and uh, the, the brothers and sisters of Jesus come to visit him, and they can't make it to Jesus, and they're saying, Jesus, come out and speak to your mother and your brothers and sisters. And what's Jesus' response at that time? He says, you're my family now. The people that are following me and listening to the Heavenly Father, you're my family now. anymore. 
That's what Jesus said. And you'll find this time and time again where Jesus uh, uh, is, is uh, well, uh, well, there's another story. I think it's, it's in the Gospel of Luke. I'm not sure exactly where it's at, but there's Jesus is walking through a, a village and someone calls out to him and says, you know, blessed is the womb that gave birth to you and blessed, you know, or the, you know, the, the woman that nursed you. Someone calls out to Jesus and says this. And what's the response that Jesus gives back? He says, no, 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 don't, don't, think, don't think Mary's blessed because she gave birth to me or because she nursed me. No, that's not the person that's blessed. The person that's blessed are the people that believe what I'm telling you. There's, there's, see, what I'm saying is there's this, there's, this, there's this significant moment that happens where Jesus has to pivot. And he's like, Mary and, and my brothers and sisters, I love you, but I have a bigger responsibility now. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not your genie in a bottle that every time you have a problem, you can come over and you can get what you need. If it's, in my, if it's within my Father's will, I will help you. But if it's not in your, my Father's will, I will not. And so Jesus is, is kind of resetting his priorities with his mother. I, 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 you know, I can't help but just mention that the, uh, specifically Jefferson City, is. I think, I think Catholicism is probably the number one. If you were to ask people to do a survey in Jefferson City, Missouri, Catholicism would probably be right up there. If it's not number one, it's certainly in the top uh, two or three. And the, uh, the doctrine of Catholicism, uh, a, a lot of it hinges around Mary and being the mother of Jesus. And, uh, and I remember talking to a friend in high school that his, they're, they're, they were Catholic and I didn't quite understand it. And the way that his mom explained it to me was, well, you know, we go pray to Mary because, uh, you know, if, if Jesus is going to listen to anybody, he's going to listen to Mary. Almost, almost kind of laying out this thought of like, Mary's more tenderhearted than Jesus. And so go to Mary because she's more tenderhearted and then she'll filter your message into Jesus and you'll get, you'll get what you want. Now, let me just say this. I'm not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not saying this to be critical of Catholic people, but I am criticizing their doctrine. The doctrine is not from the Word of God. Matter of fact, if you just read some of these stories or examples I quoted to you, Jesus' response back to the, uh, the people or to Mary um, back in those days, uh, there was, uh, you know, um, it, you know, was, it wasn't always soft and kind and friendly and so whenever whenever jesus was speaking to mary well he's, he says here in chapter two is what have i to do with you my hour has not yet come uh and uh he he says don't 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 say my mother's blessed because she gave birth to me you're more blessed than her if you'll believe what i say what i'm saying is if you look at what jesus did in his interactions with mary you'll find that there's no reason that we should believe that jesus is going to answer a prayer to mary more than he's going to answer a prayer to him and even beyond that what you'll find is that is that is the definition of idol worship it's the definition of idolatry and uh and 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 so once again i'm not saying that to be critical of catholic people there are going to be catholic people in heaven there are catholic people that are saved i'm not disputing any of that what i am telling you is that is a false doctrine that you should pray to mary or have some kind of idol statue of mary out in your garden, in your house, or any of that, any of that kind of nonsense. That's all sinfulness. That's all idol worship. And, and if you look at how Jesus treated Mary, you would not come away with that doctrine. If you look at the way they interacted, what you'd find is Jesus was not pointing to Mary at all. He was pointing people to his heavenly father. And so Mary was involved in this wedding to some extent. And Mary brings her problem to Jesus as she had perhaps done many times before. 
And Jesus responds to Mary in a way that maybe doesn't seem very kind or intimate, but Jesus is setting a clear distinction between his father's business and his mother's business. He said, I must be about my father's business as a child. And as an, as an adult, he continued in that mission. So we have the party, we have the problem, and then number three, we have the provision in verses 6 through 10. And there were set, there are six water pots of stone after the manner of purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. So he just, he just had an interaction with Mary that said, listen, I'm, uh, I'm here to do my father's business, not your business. Um, but then you find that Jesus does, he does provide assistance and he does help in the situation. So it must have been within God's will. Uh, and it goes on to say in verse number eight, and he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the rulers of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. So here again, this kind of goes back to this, this thought of, it was the bridegroom and the bride that would be embarrassed if the party didn't go well because they'd been preparing for a year. And so whenever they wanted to give honor to somebody, they didn't call the father of the bride. They didn't call the father of the groom. They called the bridegroom himself. That's who the leaders of the feast called to the bridegroom. And they begin to, they begin to compliment him when, uh, verse number 10, and when uh, men, uh, he saith unto them, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. So we see here the provision that Jesus provides. And I think there's some important lessons that we can take from the story. I think, first of all, I think there's a good lesson here. If you read through the story that, that the world's joy will always come to an end. If you, if you study the Bible, you'll find that wine is commonly pictured as a picture illustration of joy or happiness. And you can certainly find a little happiness in the world for a while, but it eventually will run out. Just like at this party, they had wine for a little while, and it could, it could provide a little bit of happiness, it could provide, provide a little bit of merriment, but it was going to run out. And the same thing is true for you and I, that whenever we put our confidence or trust in the world, it will leave us wanting. It will run dry. That, that, that joy, that happiness that we, that we rely upon from the world, it will run out one day. But not just that you find that the world's joy runs dry, but also that the world always deceives at the first. It says in verse number 9, When the rulers of the feast had tasted the, the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. See, this ruler of the feast said, It's common for us to deceive one another. We'll put out the good stuff first, and then we'll put out the bad stuff at the end. That's the way the world operates. It always gives us the, 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 the temptation, making it look so attractive and so alluring and look, it's going to meet every need and it's going to fix every problem that we have. But then we find out the consequences, the price that has to be paid for those, for those uh, entertainments of the world. They're always deceptive. They always say, give us your best first 
and then we'll and then we'll deliver and it never it never works out the world is always deceptive it's always deceiving it's always tricking and as christians we should be aware of that and then you find here it says that uh that the pots they had in verse number six and there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the jews containing two or three firkins apiece i don't know exactly some people say it's around 20 gallons i'm not sure how big these were but what these were used for, uh, you can actually read in the Old Testament, they would use these for cleansing of the priest. These, these ceremonial water pots they would use. And, uh, and they were actually using these uh, ceremonial water pots as the vessels that they were using to turn the water into wine. Now this was, this was a, uh, uh, if you were a Pharisee, this was a big no-no. I mean, it was, it's, not, it's not a sin of the Bible, but the Pharisees laid all these traditions of men on top and you'll find many of, the, many of the miracles Jesus did, he almost did it in spite of their traditions of men. He would heal people on the Sabbath. You know, they, there was a big argument about, is it lawful to heal people on the Sabbath? Um, whenever Jesus healed the man with the, with the mud and the mixture and the spittle, the Pharisees would have said, that you're performing work, and you shouldn't perform work on the Sabbath, you should keep it holy. And even in this situation, you would never, ever, 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 ever put wine inside of these, uh, these cleansing uh, water, water jugs. And what's the lesson that we can see from this? Well, we find that, that, the, that the world, its joy will run dry. And we find out that the world always deceives whenever it tempts us with what it looks good to us. It always puts the good out first. It never puts the bad out first. It never says, you know, you're going to end up in divorce. You're going to end up in jail. You're going to end up, you know, whatever. All the, all the terrible things. It never starts out like that. It always, it always looks attractive. But what you also find is the world can only cleanse the outside. That's what these water pots would do. They would be used as ritual cleaning. And you could get yourself looking real good on the outside, but they couldn't do anything about the inside. I'm not sure if you've ever seen these uh, viral videos that go out where they'll find some homeless person and they'll, and they'll take him to a, a nice place to get some new clothes and get him cleaned up and get him a haircut and they, and they get him all fixed up. And if you ever watch these videos, you, 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 what you'll find is they'll get these people and they'll fix the outside They'll get them all cleaned up, and then they'll put them back out on the street, and you come back a week later, and they're just like they were before. Because you can clean up the outside, but only God can clean the inside. And so we see here at the end of this chapter, it says, or the end of this section, uh, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So they saw the signs, they heard about the miracle, they experienced it, and the Bible says that because they saw these miracles and these signs, they believed. But these were not the only people that saw Jesus perform miracles. Let's look over in John chapter number 12. John chapter 12. In verse number 37. John 12, 37, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. So you got a couple of different groups of people. You have one group of people that saw Jesus turn water into wine. And the Bible says they believed. You come over in John chapter 12 and it says he performed many miracles before them and they believed not. See, some people, they just aren't going to believe it. Some people just aren't going to believe it. 
But that's not the only group of people that we have here. You have people that believed when they saw it. You, you find people that did not believe when they saw it. And then there's another group of people. In verse number 42, it says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So three groups of people here are represented. First of all, the group is the people that believed when they saw it. The second group of people are people that they saw it and they didn't believe. And then you have a third group of people the Bible talks about here that they believed, but they would not confess. They were religious. They wanted, they wanted all the the prestige and the approval that comes with being a religious person, but their religion was in vain. Because the Bible says in verse number 43, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. I, I mentioned this this morning because I feel like this is an important, important uh, topic to cover if, when we talk about these miracles that Jesus performed. That there are people that whenever they... Whenever they come in contact with God, they will believe. They'll put their faith. They will receive. They won't be perfect. They won't be sinless, but they'll be saved. And there'll be some people that they are going to reject. They don't want anything to do with it. They think it's nonsense. They think it's foolish. They think it's a waste of time. They think their way is better, and they'll never believe. But there's a third group of people that attend church every time the doors are opened. They, they, put, on, they put on the facade they speak the language, they talk the talk, they walk the walk, but they do it for the praise of men, not for the glory of God. I wonder if that's your testimony this morning. What's motivating you to come to church, to learn more about him? Is it because you desire to be more like him, because you believe, because you're a follower, because you put your faith? Or is it because of the expectations of men? Don't, don't, be, don't be like these people that saw the miracles and did not believe. But even worse, don't be the people that they believed enough, but they wouldn't confess. They would not confess their need for a Savior. They would not confess the need that they were sinners. And they did not believe. So this, uh, this morning, we look at the story of the provision, but also we see here the purpose. The purpose was to be a sign that many were to believe, and this was the beginning of miracles in Jesus' ministry. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time you've given us. We thank you for your word. Pray that you would, Lord, help us to deal with your word and truth. Lord, not, not, Lord, not to hear what we want to hear, but Lord, what is the truth of your word? I pray that you would allow it to change our lives. Lord, I pray now that you would be with the service to come. You be with us as a church. We prepare for the upcoming missions, Jubilee, and uh, the, the special speakers, the missionaries that will be coming. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a church in unity and love that would be an encouragement to them. And Lord, I pray that you would bless us as, as a church body. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.